The Guardian. Unplug your mobile phone charger to save around £3.50 a year. For more easy ways to save, complete our energy savers report at britishgas.co.uk forward slash ESR. Hello, I'm Alison Benjamin and this is Environment Weekly. Coming up on this week's show... You don't know where your water and and electricity comes from, basically. You don't know what happens to your garbage or sewage or what it is that keeps our our stores stocked with food and, and goods. So we think, then, that it's the economy. We're headed down a very dangerous path. We hear from award-winning scientist Dr. David Suzuki about why the human race is failing to tackle climate change. Annie Kelly reports from the Caribbean island of Grenada three years after it was hit by Hurricane Ivan. And we're here in Halifax for our campaign of the week. This is Environment Weekly from guardian.co.uk. I'm joined in the studio by Larry Elliott, The Guardian's economics editor. Hello. And ethical living writer and campaigner, Bibi Vanderzeer. Hello. What's got your green goat this week, guys? Oh, I think the uh, thing that's really got me is the way the government's obviously deeply in cahoots with BAA to fix the uh, inquiry into the third runway at Heathrow Airport. To me, that's an absolute scandal. And uh, it's a very, very good story. And I hope that one runs and runs over the coming weeks and months. Bibi? Um, I was equally irritated by the way the government has kind of fiddled around with railway figures and they've built 405 miles of new roads in the last 10 years and uh, 27 miles of railway. Is that all? Yeah, it's pretty depressing. <laughs> OK, let's find out what's been happening in the environment news. Darling plans Labour's greenest budget yet. The Chancellor, Alistair Darling, is expected to unveil a raft of new measures in his first budget aimed at cutting carbon emissions from cars. These will include proposals for higher taxes on gas-guzzling 4x4s, either when you buy them, drive them or park them. And he's expected to announce a consultation with car manufacturers on the way in which a vehicle's carbon emissions could be made clearer. One idea is to have colour-coded tax discs that easily identify the worst polluters. A two-pence per litre rise on petrol tax is also expected to go ahead, and oil companies will be forced to double to 5% the proportion of biofuel in petrol and diesel. But MPs on the All-Party Environment Audit Select Committee warn that the Treasury still isn't doing enough. It points out that green taxes, as a proportion of all taxes, have declined under this government from 9.7% in 1999 to just 7.3% in 2006. Larry, on a scale of 1 to 10, how green do you expect this budget to be? I think... In terms of presentation, it will probably be a seven or eight. It will have a very, very green tinge to it. In terms of content, I think it will probably be a four or five, maybe a six, depending on what the actual measures are. This will look a greener budget than it actually is. And I think to the extent that it is green, it's the result of the government needing the DOSH rather than any new green principles running through government policy. Uh, And the reason that um, green taxes have declined as a share of, of GDP over the last eight or nine years is because for quite a lot of that time, Gordon Brown didn't put up excise duty on petrol. This year, Darling will. That's because the government's running a deficit of about £40 billion this year. So it's uh, it's necessity rather than rather than virtue, which is driving this. <clears throat> In terms of the 
other measures, some of them seem to me to be slightly tokenistic and a bit weak. I mean, having a colour-coded tax disc, it just seems a bit weedy. Uh, and if you really want to actually cut down on emissions from cars, what you should be doing is setting strict carbon emissions from each new car. That, though, would mean taking on the car manufacturers, which this spineless government obviously won't do because it's frightened of actually upsetting big business. So that's what I would do if I was the Chancellor. And Bibi, without incentives for people to do things like insulate their homes or rebates for consumers of renewable energy along the lines of the tariff system in Germany, you know, how, how green can this actually be? Isn't it just a bit of greenwash? Um, I think it, it, it does feel a bit more like sort of a cosmetic green stuff. It's all sort of, you know, let's do a little carbon emission, like sort of petrol tax rise here and let's do a little thing here. And no big structural idea about, you know, addressing the problems with the energy infrastructure or the transport infrastructure. And it all, it's, it's, it's things that look pretty, but it don't address the major, you know, general problems that the country has to deal with at some point. On the biofuels target of 5%, the government's new chief scientific advisor, John Beddington, didn't mince his words last week when he said that the global rush to grow biofuels was compounding the problem of rising food prices and, in some cases, CO2 emissions. Some of the biofuels are hopeless in the sense that, you know, the idea that you cut down rainforest um, to actually grow biofuels seems profoundly stupid. Larry, we've been led to believe that biofuels are the holy grail. False hope? I think uh, I'm always suspicious of these quick fixes and biofuels to me seems to be the ultimate quick fix to solve the problem of the fact that energy use is going up and oil supplies seem to be peaking out and there is this mad rush to find a way of of bridging the gap. Uh, And I'm with uh, Beddington on this. I think that quite a lot of what's going on with biofuels is profoundly worrying both from the fact that you cause lots of CO2 emissions by cutting down forests to actually create the land for the biofuels. And also we're seeing spiralling food prices as a result because you're taking agricultural land out of use and turning it into, into, into land for biofuels. So that's not good for poor people in poor countries and it's going to add to the problems of global warming, I think. So I think it's actually a bit of a false dawn, this. Bibi? I think it's worth saying there are some forms of biofuel that are sustainable. I mean, anything uh, biofuels produced from um, animal waste or, you know, human excretions or um, algae, that is, those, anything from waste is sustainable. Mm. But it, the problem is when you're starting to grow it specifically for that purpose. I think the problem is that, that there's not enough from the waste, from, yeah. from the natural causes. Well, that is, you know, that, that's the problem. And once you start trying to do it on an industrial scale, which mm. is what you're going to need to do, then you start to run into the problems of creating more pollution than you're actually... That's an answer for specific problems for companies like, you know, McDonald's use their chip fat to power their lives. Great, that's fine. Then there's a cycle going on, but it's not, you know, you've got to look at the overall... We've got too many cars driving around, and that's, you know, what you've got to address. Back to black. The government signals a return to coal power. John Hutton, the cabinet minister responsible for energy, made it clear in a speech to the Adam Smith Institute that this government will approve plans to build Britain's first coal-fired power station for 20 years at King's North in Kent. Environmentalists say there's no way the government will meet targets to cut CO2 emissions by 2050 if it relies on fossil fuels to plug our energy gap. But the government argues that it will be possible to decarbonise the economy by doing things like capping emissions, carbon pricing and supporting the development of new carbon capture and storage technology. Larry, do we need a new generation of coal-fired power stations to keep the lights on? 
Well, I think in the short term, the answer to that is probably we do. If we're going to carry on using as much energy as we currently do, then we do need to find some way of making up for the fact that nuclear power stations are going to come out of um, operation over the next 10 or 15 years. I think that's rather beside the point, though. I mean, it does show where the government's priorities are, which are to keep the lights on rather than to actually um, make Britain a sustainable economy in the future. And I think what this decision does do is show just how negligent and remiss this government has been over the last 10 years in failing to develop real sources of renewable energy because it has been forced to retreat into the sort of lager of coal-powered stations because there's no no short-term alternative. Uh, And it hasn't even it seems, actually made a condition of the permission for this station to be built that actually the carbon capture is part of the deal. That seems to me to be the absolute <coughs> bottom line for this. If the government is going to have a new generation of coal-fired power stations, then it has to make sure that they are cutting its technology and have carbon uh, c- you know, carbon capture to make sure that we don't get the CO2 emissions from them. This, 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 this station apparently is going to increase... Britain's carbon footprint alone by around 5%. So I think it's an absolutely absurd decision by the government, an incredibly short-termist, and, and does actually show where its real priorities are. But we're, we're still years away from actually developing this capture and storage technology, from my understanding. No, there is there is capture. I mean, there, there are lots of systems for capturing emissions from... I mean, they've been used for other systems as well, sulphur, mercury, and there are systems for capturing um, carbon, although they are still being developed. But, I mean, they're very, very expensive at the moment, and they, they, they cost energy to run on top of the energy that, you know... So you're then... I mean, I understand that something like 40... You can be up to 40% of the energy produced by the plant will go to you know, capturing the carbon that it's producing. And it's just, it's sort of bonkers. It doesn't make any kind of sense. And, I mean, you know, there's been this political failure and now you're having to tape things together to get I mean, past the, it. The power company says that the carbon emitted will be stored under the North Sea. Yeah, in the old oil fields, apparently. That's one of the places they're talking about putting them. Isn't that a good idea? Well, you're just putting cans of things in different places. You know, you've got cans of old nuclear sort of fuel here and you've got cans of carbon there and you've got landfills here and there's a limited amount of place to just shove our mess and we have to start actually dealing with it. I think there's a, the government's missing a trick here even from the point of view of the economy because there is going to be a great wave of the future which is carbon storage. The, the, the new power stations, if, if a technology can be developed in a country which actually is at the cutting edge of this, then there's going to be money to be made out of it worldwide because everybody, I mean lots of countries have got coal-fired power stations. Yeah. China's building about two of them a week. Mm-hmm. So the country which can actually develop a technology that works for this stuff is going to make a lot of money out of it. And the government, you know, it seems was told by E.ON, which is going to be the company uh, building it, that it didn't like this idea of having carbon carbon capture as part of the deal. And it caved, the government caved in within six minutes. I mean, that is unbelievable. It yes. is slightly hard to fathom. I mean, it's, it's hard to fathom and deeply depressing, I think. <laughs> the, the, the government really just takes such a short-termist view of this thing. So it's, it's real hand-to-mouth living now, really. The EU's told climate change may spark a conflict with Russia. A grim report from the EU's two top foreign policy officials warns of increasing conflict over energy resources in the Arctic because the rapid melting of polar ice caps will open up new areas for energy exploration. The same report tells the EU to prepare for millions of climate change migrants who will soon be fleeing the ravages of global warming. These might include increased flooding, prolonged droughts and severe water shortages. The report calls on the EU to start taking count of climate change and its impact in security and foreign policy decisions. 
Larry, this is the first report of its kind to be presented at an EU summit. How significant is it? I think it's a pretty significant report. I think the warning over Russia is actually quite timely because it's quite clear, I think, that Russia intends to use its energy resources and its its wealth it's getting from its oil and gas as a sort of new instrument in a Cold War, really. It's, it's already flexing its diplomatic muscles uh, in a way that most of the Middle Eastern states, which are oil rich, are not. It's built up a huge sovereign wealth fund, which will actually give it some clout in Western markets. And it's it's already had some brushes with its near neighbours over energy policy. And I think the Europeans are rightly quite concerned over how vulnerable they are to the threat from the Kremlin and the increasingly nationalistic noises being made by, by the Russian leadership. So I think, that, I think that, 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 that was the more interesting part of it. I think the, the warning about uh, environmental migrants is, is not particularly new, but it, I think it, it does actually sort of um, exemplify the, the scale of the potential problem, which is that poor countries are going to be the ones who are first hit and hurt worse by climate change. And inevitably, they're going to come to the parts of the world mm. which are less affected mm. and richer. So I think that that is, that is, a, that is something that we should start preparing for, although I, I wouldn't have thought that would really be a problem for, for, the ne- for the next 10 or 15 years. But given what we've just been saying about carbon <laughs> capture, it might be as well to start making plans for it <laughs> before, before it actually happens. Which <laughs> It's unlikely. <laughs> yeah, it's unlikely. Yeah. Bibi, I mean, the report paints a very scary scenario. Yes. And there is a danger with these reports that you throw your hands up in the air and think, oh, my God, what can we do? It's all doom and gloom. And what, have you got any suggestions? <laughs> um, I mean, I was actually thinking in a way it's, it's, it might be quite useful because you might get people like Richard Littlejohn on the side at last if you start scaring <laughs> the Daily Mail with tales of immigrants flooding the country. This might be the answer to actually get people into um, motion a bit. But, um, I mean, otherwise, or you know, it, it, the, the news about climate change migrates so that's that isn't new for anyone who's been interested in this for a long time and and it, you just keep pushing don't you you just keep on trying to point out to the government or your local MPs or whoever's available that you are interested you want to see change and you want to see it now but whether that makes a difference just try not to get too depressed <laughs> I think it's important okay and um, you can contribute to the debate at blogs.guardian.co.uk slash climate change I'm Alison Benjamin, still to come on this edition of Environment Weekly. We've got into this period of horrible consumption and demand for fashions that makes us a very, very destructive animal. And because most people only know this way of life, that seems normal. We hear why humans have lost the foresight to deal with climate change. Now, the Caribbean island of Grenada is still trying to recover from a hurricane that struck three years ago, destroying most of its homes and wiping out much of its agriculture. Annie Kelly reports on how the government's embrace of tourism to rejuvenate its bankrupt economy could have severe environmental consequences. The small Caribbean island of Grenada is a holidaymaker's paradise, with miles of white sand beaches, translucent waters and lush green rainforests. But three years ago, the full force of Hurricane Ivan hit Grenada's shores, destroying everything in its path. The hurricane's 150-mile-an-hour winds killed 39 people and destroyed 95% of houses, leaving thousands homeless. Jenny Gilchrist is a local woman from the parish of St David's. She was at home with her daughter when the hurricane hit her village. The wind was very massive. Trees began to fall. I saw... Two of my neighbours 
whole stroke went off because I was sitting on my bed then and I saw two holes roof from the other side. One was my family and then my neighbor not too far from me on the side there. I saw another one. I saw when the roof came off and the holes fell. Then I saw one sheet of carbonite from another neighbor and said, well, things is rough. And from there on it got worse and got worse. My roof came off. And she said, where will we go? Where will we? I said, well, there is nowhere we can go at this time because we're in danger. So you have to remain right here. And we remained there till morning. When we got up from under that bed, I was like a drunken man. Because when I got up and I looked out, I just couldn't believe my eyes. Everything was done. Everything. Three and a half years later, Grenada is still struggling to recover from the damage inflicted by the hurricane. As well as destroying large tracts of virgin rainforest, Ivan decimated Grenada's nutmeg plantations, which provided the main source of income and employment on the island. Samuel Joseph, who lost his nutmeg plants in the hurricane, says many farmers are still struggling to make a living. Ivan, you know, devastated most of the houses, so the farmers, most of them lost their houses. They lost their nutmegs, their breadfruit, coconuts, and the other means of living. Mm. And as you know, nutmeg, when, it, when it's replanted, it takes something like about five years to start bearing, 15 years to get economic production. The average age of the farmers in Grenada is over 60. So therefore, the farmers are, are about traumatized because to go and start all over again, they haven't got much strength, they haven't got much money. The children, in fact, now the younger people, you don't really get much support from them to do um, agriculture in this country. With its agricultural production in tatters, Grenada's government is now turning to tourism as a way of rejuvenating its bankrupt economy. But the speed at which the island is being sold off to resort developers is causing concern. Environmentalists are accusing the Grenadian government of sacrificing the island's pristine natural habitats for short-term financial gains. The most controversial of the 15 tourism developments currently underway on the island is the Mount Hartman estate. This large expanse of dry forest and mangrove swamps is home to the last few endangered Grenada doves. Bird experts estimate that there are only around 120 Grenadian doves left in existence, and now one of their last remaining habitats is being cleared to make way for a new luxury Four Seasons resort. Developers point out that part of the area is still protected as a national park, but critics argue that building so close to the last remaining nesting sites could threaten the survival of the species. Craig Keller, one of the developers of the Four Seasons Resort, took me on a boat tour around Mount Hartman to show me where the resort will be built. Keller says that the dove will be protected and points to recent concessions made by the hotel chain, such as funding research into the dove and extending the boundaries of the national park. He says the project should be seen as an example of how development and conservation can find a middle ground. Well, we're, we're a, we, we've absolutely committed that the master plan layout um, is what we're going to work to from, you know, from a dove sanctuary point of view. The dove sanctuary has been realigned officially by the National Parks Advisory Committee, who are the body that recommend to the uh, Governor-General of Grenada to realign. So that's, that official process has happened. So we actually we are obliged to stick to it, so never mind whether we want to. But more importantly, we've put a lot of effort into, into doing this. We've moved our development around dramatically. We've reduced the impact of it. 
you know, happily, we wouldn't do it otherwise. Um, and so, yeah, we're wholly committed to it. But the problems don't stop there. Marine biologists warn that the proposed removal of the mangroves around Mount Hartman to make way for multi-million pound waterfront villas will be a catastrophe for Grenada's depleted fishing stocks. I believe at the moment there is so much coastal development going on, particularly in the south of the island. And the south of the island is a very, very important area, particularly with the mangroves. And the mangroves represent nursery habitats for both coral reef and pelagic fishes that are enormously important to the economy of Grenada, both from a direct catching of fish point of view, but also from the industries like the diving industry, snorkeling industry as well. I think the the concentration of development in those areas and the south coast of Grenada is where the most pristine mangrove forests currently are. But uh, as it's the main tourist belt and where the population of Grenada is most concentrated, that's an area under enormous pressure right now. And that is probably my biggest concern. But while environmentalists despair, local people take a different view. They welcome any investment that will bring jobs and prosperity back to their bankrupt economy. I don't think the greater percentage of the young, young people will go back into agriculture, so therefore we need to diversify. And um, in selling lands, another thing, we have to look at the environment, we've got to look at proper land use, we have to look at... Um, conservation of a certain amount of forests, etc., etc. So if it's, if it's well planned and it's done properly, I think it would benefit the country. So it's all development, really? It's all development, yeah. and we have to adjust. We have to adjust. I'm not worried about the future at all. That was Annie Kelly in Grenada. Larry, there always seems to be this conflict between green concerns and the economy, and the former inevitably seems to lose out. There's two factors really. One is money, money talks, and my uh, my bet is that the uh, hotel will be there long after the doves have flown away or <laughs> been uh, been murdered by the eco tourists. Um, and the second is that politicians have very very short term horizons, particularly in strangely in democratic countries, they can see no further than the next the next meeting with the electorate on polling day, and so they would rather push problems back to some other guy on their watch rather than deal with it now and face down vested interests and, and lose votes. So I think that it, it is it is very, very difficult to to actually put the environment ahead of the economy when it comes to the political pecking order. Um, and that report seemed to exemplify that, that, that mm, very well. Mm. Bibi, are you a fan of ecotourism to try and uh, rectify some of these problems? I'm I'm a bit suspicious of some of the um, eco, you know, the idea of flying to some island in the South Pacific to do a conservation project and then flying back again seems slightly <laughs> self-defeating um, if you're worried about climate change. But um, but um, I think that you can't just leave anxieties about the environment behind when you go on holiday. You sort of take it with you because they're habits that you've got into, you know, turning off lights and all those sort of small things you hope you've managed to remember to do. Um, I think Leo Hickman suggested in his book uh, quite a good approach to travel, which is, he says, it's the Goldilocks approach, where one year you have a big holiday, the next year you have a sort of medium, small holiday, and the last last year you have a small, you know, camping in your back garden. (laughs) I think that's So so what are you doing this year then? (laughs) This year we've had a medium holiday. Okay, so you've got a Goldilocks one, a a big one coming up. Yeah, I think we're due on it. Now we're off to Halifax for our campaign of the week. I'll let Stephen Welsh explain.
My name is Stephen Welsh, and I'm from a social enterprise called Water Power Enterprises. We're based in Halifax and are working on a number of different small-scale hydroelectric schemes throughout the country. Being a social enterprise, we have social goals, and they tend to be twofold. The first one is the reduction of carbon emissions through the generation of small-scale hydroelectricity, and the second one is to involve and engage local communities in those schemes. Community engagement can take a wide spectrum of uh, possibilities, through to simple consultation on a planning permission for a hydro site, through to full community ownership. Now, what we think we've done is found a really exciting way of involving local communities in owning hydro sites in their locality. Because what that does is it provides a sustainable income stream available to that community for its own community through the sale of the hydroelectricity. And we think that's a pretty much untapped source of money for regeneration purposes. Our first community on site is at New Mills in Derbyshire. That's a 70 kilowatt scheme. That's enough for the equivalent of the average electric needs of about 70 houses. That would produce 260,000 units of electricity and save in its lifetime about 4,600 tonnes of carbon dioxide about 13 million car miles in its lifetime, the equivalent of. And it should be producing electricity come July of, the, of this year. So I think what we've done is linked local action on community change, which is extremely worthwhile in itself, to the actual economic benefit of that action going back to the local community. Because what happens there is the sale of the hydroelectricity is obviously an income stream, and that income is divided into, uh, obviously, for the maintenance of the scheme, an amount for the shareholders, but the rest, which is what the structure is set up for, is for mainly for the benefit of the community. And we believe that will be thousands of pounds going back into the New Mills area for its own economic and community regeneration schemes. So I think we've, we've got a really good system here whereby we as a social enterprise engage with local communities, produce renewable energy, reduce carbon emissions and provide a sustainable income stream for the regeneration of that community. That was Stephen Welsh of Water Power Enterprise. To learn more about their hydroelectricity projects, go to h2ope.org.uk. Environment Weekly with Alison Benjamin from guardian.co.uk. One of the easiest ways to save CO2 is to join the Guardian's Tread Lightly initiative. This week's pledge couldn't be simpler, only boiling the amount of water in the kettle that you actually need. It may not seem a likely way to save the planet, but as a nation, we drink 165 million cups of tea a day, and we could be wasting some 3,525 tonnes of CO2. To make your pledge, go to guardian.co.uk slash treadlightly. Bibi, we're always being told to do things like, you know, make sure you've got enough, just enough water in the kettle and switch the standby off. And I'm sure you do all those things. Of course, of course. But, you know, shouldn't we be doing some bigger things like lobbying our MP and that type of thing? I'm, I'm, I have this argument quite often because there are a lot of um, environmentalists who, who get, seem to get very cross about the whole idea of turning off lights and, and not using plastic bags and, and see it as sort of useless froth. And... Um, but then when you ask them, they do actually do all those things themselves. And, of course, they do turn off lights and don't fly. And they say well, it would be hypocritical to actually not do it. Um, but, yes, of course you should be lobbying your MPs. I mean, it's all part of trying to affect change. But small actions can be a way of lobbying. And if you look at Modbury recently, where they last year they got rid of plastic bags, I mean, that's effectively one whole town lobbying government to say, we don't want plastic bags anymore. And it's had a huge effect. And, you know, now... The Daily Mail thinks that Brown's going to be getting rid of plastic bags in the budget tomorrow. Whether that will happen or not, I don't know. But 
that is how you do it. You show the government that you want the change. And they're so scared of everything. If enough people do it, you know, they'll go along with that. I think it was a great campaign, actually, because it did, did show what grassroots opinion can do and it mm. came from the bottom mm. up and mm. forced the government to actually respond to it so it was a well orchestrated campaign it was brilliant and the, the daily mail you know, bless it did a fantastic job there i thought in orchestrating that campaign and and, and the government did it did roll over it, mm. it was it was you know leave if you leave things to the government to do then nothing will ever happen because they're they're lobbied day and night by <coughs> by vested interests that don't want them to be changed but when they when they when they can say to these companies look you know two million people, three million people actually want this, then the, the government will act. I mean, the problem is that plastic bags is a distinct case. It's very clear. It's a very easy action. You know, you can see the beginning and the middle and the end. But, you know, action on climate change, how do you lobby as a whole town for that? You know, there are places like Hayton, Ashbury, where they're... No, not Hayton, Ashbury. Well, there are these transition towns, yes. aren't there, that are doing things. They're trying to yeah. uh, reduce their carbon Zero footprint. carbon lifestyle. Yeah. And whether they can get enough strength behind them as well to sort of affect the change that Modbury's done, I don't know. Now, you've probably seen sustainable development professor David Suzuki on the television explaining the complexities of the natural sciences in a compelling and fairly easily understood way. Well, on Wednesday night, he's delivering this year's Commonwealth Lecture at the London School of Economics. It's all about how man has evolved to a point where we are altering the biological, chemical and physical features of the planet with enormous ecological consequences. The Guardian's environment editor, John Vidal, caught up with the scientist ahead of the lecture to find out why he reckons we're blind to the global eco-crisis we're creating. David Suzuki, you're a, an eminent biologist. Uh, your thesis in your Commonwealth lecture is that man has lost foresight. What is going on? Well, I think there are a number of things that uh, prevent us from being able to, to see things clearly. For one thing, uh, population has exploded in this century. When I was born in 1936, there were just over 2 billion people. In my lifetime, the population has tripled, which means... Every year, because far more children are born, babies are born, than people die, the average age of people is getting younger and younger. Well, what does that mean? It means that most people in the world now were born after 1950, so that to them, this explosive period of growth and change is normal. And they think this is what's got to be maintained at all costs. They have no idea of a society where you don't have disposable things and uh, where you don't take pride in durable goods. Uh, we've got into this period of horrible consumption and, and uh, demand for fashions that makes us a very, very destructive animal. And because most people only know this way of life, that seems normal. I, I think as well. Are you, saying, are you saying that it was absolutely normal to have foresight, to have the precautionary principle in much older societies? Well, I think people thought ahead. Uh, the the other thing is, of course, we've been transformed from uh, an, a village agrarian species. We were a farming animal in in 1900. In a in only a hundred years, we were transformed into a a big city dweller. In 1900, there were only 14 cities with more than a million people. Most people lived in rural village communities. And when you're a farmer, you know about climate and weather and the importance of water and, and nature. I mean, you're much more closely plugged in. But in the city, and we become, especially in the industrialized countries, primarily big city dwellers, 
You don't know where your water and, and electricity comes from, basically. You don't know what happens to your garbage, your sewage, or what it is that keeps our, our stores stocked with food and, and goods. So we think, then, that it's the economy. The economy delivers these things, and the economy becomes our highest, uh, our highest priority. And I think this is a terrible thing because ecology and economics come from the same root word, eco or oikos, the Greek word meaning home. Economics is the management of home. Ecology is the study of home. Ecologists attempt to determine the conditions and the principles that allow life to flourish. And you would have thought any other sector of society would say to ecologists, please define those principles and conditions for me so we can live within, within them. But what we've done is elevated economics above ecology. We have a government then that says, oh yes, we must do something about climate change, but it mustn't jeopardize the economy. So we've put the economy above everything else. And these things then prevent us they blind us to the reality of what I believe scientists have been saying for over 40 years. We're headed down a very dangerous path. There are opportunities if we change directions, and that's the foresight that we've always used since we evolved 150,000 years ago in Africa. We've always used foresight to look ahead, see the dangers, avoid the dangers, and exploit the opportunities. Are you but saying, now we're blinded from that. Are you saying that we are biologically ill-equipped to face this crisis? Well, of course, that's a whole other issue. Uh, our sensory organs are not equipped to detect CFCs in the atmosphere or PCBs or DDT. We, don't in, we have to rely on science to tell us these things are accumulating. We can't tell through our physical biology. We can't tell that carbon dioxide is building up in the atmosphere or other greenhouse gases. But we have instruments to do that. Uh, but I think the fact is that we are programmed to respond to immediate threats. We hear the crack of a, a branch breaking or, or we, we smell a fire breaking out. I mean, we respond to immediate things through our senses. But we have science to, to take over what our bodies did when we lived in a more, uh, uh, in a more simple way. Uh, biologically, it's true that we're, we're not set up to detect a lot of the major problems that confront us. John Vidal was talking to Dr David Suzuki, Emeritus Professor in Sustainable Development at the University of British Columbia. Larry, so we're heading down a very dangerous path and it's all the economy's fault. Or economics for what do you make of that? <laughs> Blame the economists. That's always a good <laughs> idea, isn't it? Well, I mean, up to a point, I, I agree with uh, what uh, David Suzuki was saying there. I mean, I think there's, there's absolutely no doubt that the past 250 years of industrial uh, capitalism have actually caused severe strains on the environment. I mean, where I have my doubts is whether there'll be too many people ready to sign up for this sort of. Uh, before the flood type uh, vision of the world that uh, Suzuki talks about, because there have been great advantages to humanity from 250 years of economic growth. I mean, back in 1750, for example, life really was nasty, brutish and short. People lived till they were 40. They worked six and a half, perhaps seven days a week. They had back-breaking labour and they had very poor diets and they lived pretty miserable existences, really. So I I don't really share the sort of romantic view of a golden age that that never was. And I I think we, we would have trouble in actually converting today's generation to a vision of the future that looks something like Mm. that. While I agree with some of his analysis, 
as a sort of clarion call for action, I'm not sure it's particularly convincing. But he's saying we're not going to have a future if we keep going the way we are, isn't he, Bibby? Um, yes, he is, isn't he? I mean, it's it's all it's all quite disturbing stuff. What, what's interesting always is that this idea... I mean, humans are very bad at looking to the future and imagining what's going to happen. And, and that's been the big problem in dealing with climate change. Unless we can see it or feel it, we can't, we can't, we can't really think about how to deal mm. with it. It's not real. It's like... I mean, you can feel, find, find that in your own everyday life when you're sort of imagining changing a job or, you know, having a baby or going on holiday. You can't, you can't really imagine it till you get there. And I think that, that what we have now, we, do, we are finally having, to, having some real physical signs of climate change. And you have to really, you know, push that as hard as you can and say, look, this is happening, this is here. You've got scientists finally saying, you know, you've got the Stern report, the IPCC reports. You've got cold, hard evidence to really push for action and, and, um, and, and just try and get us past this inability to look past next week. Economists have a role to play, I think, in actually re-educating people away from thinking that more growth is necessarily a good thing and less growth is necessarily a bad thing. I mean, for example, Germany is a country which will probably soon be seeing negative growth because it's going to have a falling population. Its, it's population may fall fa- fairly rapidly. So mm. even if it increases its productivity, its actual overall level of GDP may at some point in the not-too-distant future be falling. And that's seen as a great catastrophe mm. for the German economy. I would have thought actually it's a pretty good thing for the German economy to have fewer people knocking around the country and a slightly uh, less big carbon footprint. It would actually be, you know, Germany's a very rich country, so if so, what if they were, if their GDP fell by 1% or 2%? It's, it, w- it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a disaster. It might actually be, have real mm. knock on benefits on standard of. Of, of life as opposed to the sort of very sort of hard measure of standard of living, which is the way we tend to sort of judge economies. Yeah, do you think there's going to be more of a coming together of, you know, judging economy more in the kind of ecological well-being kind of way? That's what a lot of environmentalists are pushing for. I mean, Bill McKibben, for example, talks about a deep economy and, and, and the New Economics Foundation sort of put together ideas for going away from just the GDP, the GDP, GDP. You know, that is, that is the, the cornerstone of everything. And, and is that really a realistic way of judging? It's just easy. The reason they do yeah. GDP is because you can measure someone going into Pret-a-Manger yeah. and buying a sandwich <laughs> or you can measure somebody going into a car mm. share and but, I mean, going out with a Lexus. But you can't actually measure things like <clears throat> the cost of pollution mm. or how much unemployment costs to the family well-being or any of those things that really make life worth living which is sort of love and and, and all those sort of you know and, and good health and, and and so on and happiness so it's, it's we need to sort of think out outside the sort of conventional way of doing economics which is all about hard measurements mm. there are mm. lots of soft ways of softer ways of measuring whether we're doing well as a society and those that has to be a way way forward I think. But whether that's actually possible. Well I mean people are starting to toy with these things. The, the new, you say the New Economics Foundation have developed their index of sustainable economic welfare mm. so there are people who, and the government is now starting to publish sort of environmental reports every year all about how, how what's happening to pollution so it's, it's very very early and it does need to be pushed much harder but it does show I think that you can, you can measure um, things beyond just GDP. Well on that note that's all we've got time for this week on this edition of Environment Weekly. Many thanks to my guests Larry Elliott and Bibi van der Zee and to my producer Lucy Greenwell. I'm Alison Benjamin. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.